for me personally, I'm kind of like, why am I doing this? To do it just to get rich, it, that has nothing there. It feels so empty and vacuous. And so that, that doesn't work for me. And I go on these walks sometimes. And I remember it was on this one walk that I came to the point of what my why was. Build a financially successful company so that the company can invest in the people who make it flourish. That really spoke to me. I'm helping the people. So it's like, I want a profitable company that's going to help them flourish. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In the last episode, we talked to Dory Clark about how to become a great communicator and how to become a recognized expert. Today, we talked to Andy Alsop, a serial entrepreneur. Over 30 years, Andy has been a member of the founding and C-level team of six startups. And right now, he is the president and CEO of The Receptionist, the original tablet-based visitor management system. So when you get to a company that doesn't have a receptionist, I'm sure you have run into a little tablet that helps you check in. Andy makes that software. In our conversation, he talks really openly about some of the lessons that he learned as he was building his other startups and how these lessons have informed how he's currently running the company. Andy is running the receptionist with what he calls the principle of employee supremacy. He makes a pretty compelling case for the idea that if you put employee needs ahead of shareholder needs, in the long run, you will build a better and more profitable company. So as you can tell, we're in for a pretty rich conversation. But before we dive in, Remember that I will pick my two favorite reviews on Apple Podcasts and send a copy of Dory Clark's book to one of the reviewers and a copy of Aliza Cohn's books to the other. So go leave your reviews. And now let's turn our attention to Andy. Andy, welcome. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Why don't we start? Why don't you give me sort of a sense of your background? I know you're a serial entrepreneur. What you're doing now and what are some of the ventures that you did before? That's correct. So I have been an entrepreneur for, I don't know, somewhere around 30 years now. And my background started in my entrepreneurial career in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I have been either a founder of a company, part of the founding team, part of the C-level team. And it's always been about startups. Technology startups is what I've been involved in. And for several, I mean, for 20, 22 years, I had been working in New Mexico and trying really hard to get something to succeed and work. And I had some, you know, some good stuff and things like that, but nothing I really felt strongly had made it. So my wife was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. And so her mother was there. And after the last startup I was with in New Mexico, uh, and the CEO came to all of us and said, look, I'm out of money. We're shutting it down. I said, I got to do something else. I got to make a change here because I've been doing the same thing, expecting a different outcome, which is the definition of insanity. And so I looked at my wife and I said, I'm going to go and start kind of moving my entrepreneurial career up to Denver. And I ended up networking and just getting involved in the Denver community. I even was part of an organization called 101010. 
which was working with this great guy, Tom Higley, who was, you know, trying to solve these really thorny problems using entrepreneurs who had succeeded in their past and done really well. And that got me into a network of the entrepreneurial community. From that, I ended up meeting two guys who had two startups, no capital, hardly any employees, and they're running it under one roof. And they and I started talking, and then one of the startups was called the iPad Receptionist. And I thought it was really interesting, and I looked at it, and I said, you know, what about if I bought this? And they said, that would be great, because that would mean we get an infusion of capital into our company, and we can start and work on what we really want to work on, and you can take over the iPad Receptionist. So I did. April of 2015, I executed the purchase of the iPad Receptionist. It was uh, running a whopping 120 locations using the software. And it's a visitor management software. So when you walk into an office, you check in on an iPad. And the iPad lets the person know that you're there and that you're there to meet with them, ask you questions, and does all fun stuff like that. Today, we have over close to 5,000 locations using the software. And we took iPad out of the name because Apple doesn't like it when you use one of their trademarks in their name. So about 2016, we renamed it The Receptionist. It's based in North Denver. So that's kind of my story about how I got to where I am and what I'm doing now. That is fabulous. And, you know, I assume like by removing the name iPad, maybe at some point you can do the Android version as well. (laughs) Exactly. We call it the receptionist for iPad so that we could call the other one the receptionist for Android. That's a a good point. We haven't yet gotten there, though. (laughs) Okay. That's right. So I'm interested. You mentioned you've been through a number of, you said four startups before the receptionist? Uh, Probably more like eight, seven or something like that. It's been a lot. The other thing that I liked is you said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, repeating different outcomes. It sounds like between the last one and really starting the receptionist, you had time to sort of think and be more intentional about the next move. I'm wondering what are like the biggest lessons from pre-receptionist that you brought in in terms of what to do and not what to do with the receptionist as setting up the company? Well, let me see if I can keep it sort of short because I could probably go on for a long time. Take all the time you need. (laughs) I mean, one of the ones that I think about most is that in 1998, we merged three different businesses together. And it's kind of taking a very long story and, and kind of bringing it down to a short story. But it was a very difficult merger between these three very tiny little web development companies. And we created a company called Panorama Point. And Panorama Point was doing well and chugging along until the end of 2000, beginning of 2001. And what happened was we had the dot-com bubble and we were developing websites for a lot of companies that were uh, affected by the dot-com bubble. And so as a result of that, we didn't manage the company really well. We had, unfortunately, some dissatisfied employees. We had employees that didn't feel like the company had their best interest at heart. I was actually the president, our our CEO at the time was wanting to really drive hard towards growth and building headcount and things like that. And we ran it so close to the bone in terms of cash that it came down to the point where customers were pulling contracts because they said, look, we just, we had one company, Lucent Technologies, that 
came to us and said, we just laid off 25,000 people. And oh, yeah, that $100,000 contract we were about to sign, we're not going to sign it. And it was one of the most painful experiences in my entrepreneurial career. I had to look at people in the eye and say, we don't have any more money left. I can't even give you a severance. I am sorry. And it was really heart-wrenching. And it basically changed how I wanted to run companies going forward. I never, ever wanted to get into that situation again. Not only, I wanted to have employees that felt satisfied and that felt fulfilled, but I also never wanted to get into a situation where I ran the company in what I really look back on as an irresponsible way to run the company. I wanted to always make sure that we had money in the bank. So if I take that forward, we're going through a pandemic. And I have a bunch of, you know, we have a team when, when the pandemic started, I think we had a team of 12, 13, something. We're up to a team of 17. But myself and the leadership team, I, I, I said, and we even had some financial advisors, like you could probably spend more money if you wanted to. But I said, no, I don't want to because I have to look these employees in the eye and tell them that their job is secure through some of the worst times where we're having an extreme economic downturn uh, at the time. Obviously, there's been a lot of recovery. And also, we're in a business where people need to walk into offices to check in on an iPad. <laughs> what happens to an event, I mean, a visitor management company? Well, we had a lot of customers coming to us and saying, nobody's coming into the office. We don't need this software anymore. And so we had the resources so that we could I actually, during the, the, the downturn, we implemented something called the COVID Family Travel Program because we had a lot of people living in Denver whose family lived in other parts of the country, and they felt isolated because they couldn't travel. So we said, if you live in another part of the country, we'll pay for you to get back to your family, go work at your home with your family, and we'll pay for you to come back. We also intentionally increased our insurance benefits during that time. Because we wanted them to feel like this company actually is being run in a responsible way. And I still have my job. And not only do I still have my job, I'm paying lower premiums than I, than I was before and that type of thing. So that's sort of where my past has come in and sort of changed how my perspective is going forward and how I run the company. That is really interesting because I remember having a conversation with a friend around June of 2020 when the big round of layoffs came around. And like you, you know, I've been around the 2001.com crash. We've been through the 2008, 2009 mortgage crisis. And the one thing that I remember is that both those crises, whether it was a year or two years later, were followed by a really big rapid growth period when the biggest issue was finding good talent. And I remember having a conversation how you treat your employees right now, it's going to have a significant impact a year and a half from now when the recovery starts. And that's been compounded by the fact that not only we have a recovery, but there's been a significant mind shift in just the way that people are looking and thinking about work. So I'm wondering, what are you seeing in your employee base in terms of your retention and, and, and sort of the results of this investment that obviously you've decided to make in them? I would say that I can put it on one key performance indicator, if you want to say it. 
we have only had one person since I started this company leave the company voluntarily. Every single person is still with the company who I've hired. Unfortunately, we've, we've have had to let some people go because they weren't fits for the company, but only one person has voluntarily left. And that person moved out to California with his girlfriend who got a job at Apple. And then he got poached. You know, another company came along and he got a great opportunity that when I found out he was leaving the company, I was like, yeah, go for that. Because it meant he was one of our engineers and he meant he could run an engineering team, which is what his dream was. And that gave him the opportunity. So we were applauding and happy to, to see him go. But I think we have almost close to 100% retention from that perspective. That is fabulous. And, you know, it's interesting what you just said. Like, I just remember just a couple of days ago, somebody said, great mentors are people who are happy to see you move on. Yeah. And I think th that's a great indicator. You mentioned that some people were, you had to let go because they weren't a good fit. I'm wondering, as you were starting the company, and if you took the time to think about what were the values of the company and, and what was the process to determine those values and then starting making sure that the people within the company lived according to those values. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the meat of our discussion that I want to talk about because I think this is where a lot of the evolution of my leadership has come from. A long time ago, I mean, before I started this company, I honestly thought that core values were a bunch of BS because there were the things that companies put on their walls. They were the things that they said, let's all hurrah about what our core values are. But are you actually living them? And every employee I talked to said, oh, core values, that's just stuff that like management told us about, but we don't really do anything about that. So I always saw them as this stuff of kind of BS, as I said. Around 2015, 2016, when, we st when I bought the company, we did go through an effort to try to figure out where our values were. And we pretty much did what other companies did. We put them on a Google Doc somewhere. And then seriously, had a hard time even remembering where we had put them. And we kind of went through this afternoon exercise to come up with them. We actually, what we did was, there's been some sort of seminal books for me that I have read. And one of them is Traction, Getting a Grip on Your Business by Gino Wickman and the whole entrepreneurial operating system. And part of Gino's theory is that you develop the virtual traction organizer, and there's different sections to it. But the first section in that exercise as you go through the process is to develop your core values. So we had to dust off and find that document we had in Google Docs. And we're like, all right, so here's the first step. And so it's myself and my leadership team. We only had a three-person leadership team at that time. But we said, we read the book, we said, this is what we need to organize this or this company so that it runs efficiently. And we went step by step to the process. Well, the first step in the process is figure out what your core values are. And again, I'm carrying in this baggage from the past, like core values, it's a bunch of BS. But we went through the process. And what we had to do was take those other core values that we had sort of put together, but never really formulated enough that we were able to kind of make them part of the DNA of the company and say, what are we actually going to make these into? And through sort of an organic exercise, we ended up coming up with what our core values are, which are fabric, fun, authentic, bold, respectful, innovative, and collaborative. We do have them on the walls, but more importantly, through this exercise, I recognized that I wanted to make sure that everybody in the company 
adhere to those core values. So if, you know, part of your mention was you had some people that didn't work out so well. Well, that's because I didn't even know what our core values were. Most of the people we had to let go were prior to us adopting the core values and employing a company called Scalability Solutions that helps us hire people. And uh, Lila Blauner, who is the head of that company, when she helps us through the process and is sifting through all the resumes, what we're doing is first and foremost determining, do we have a cultural value fit? Because if we don't have a cultural value fit, we shouldn't even talk to those people. And so through that process, we have developed a pretty strict hiring process. And we have, uh, we, you know, unfortunately had to let one or two people go since we hired through this process. But we've hired about 16 people through this process and only had to let two go. And they somehow we didn't quite figure out the cultural met and feel like I, I know that and I believe this, that whenever you have to let go of somebody, it's not the person. It's almost always the responsibility of the company and the leaders who made a mistake. So I'm willing to admit my fault that I made some mistakes and we made some mistakes in hiring. But first and foremost, we have to, to hire against culture. And so that, that's kind of led us down this path that we've, we've gone on because now we put traction together and the company is just, it's running smoothly. We have good meetings. We have, there's a way to cascade information so that if an employee has a, a concern that can bring it up and I'll make it all to leadership. And there's a process for making sure that's cascaded out to the rest of the team. So you don't have these situations where an employee says, I talked to you about that like seven months ago and nothing ever happened. Every single issue gets addressed and is worked through. So we've got all these different pieces in it. So that's really kind of how I think that's the first part of revolution. And I'll break because I don't want to talk forever. But see if you have any questions. <laughs> I actually have one question because it's a question that I normally ask everybody I interview. And you have authenticity is one of your core values. So I'm interested in how do you personally define authenticity and then what's the definition within the core values and the expectations within for your employees yeah and i thought it was funny because one of our core values is authentic and you have authentic in the name of your your podcast so i, I feel like yeah i'm on the right right spot to talk about this but for me what does authenticity means it means that myself and the people around me feel a sense of trust and safety about the environment that they're in so that I and the people around me can speak their truth without the fear of the outcome that might come from it. That's kind of like personally how I, I define it. But how we specifically define it for each one of our values is build open, truthful, and honest relationships. That's how we decide what authentic means. And I'm interested still within the area of values. How deeply do you go into definitions as you sort of socialize the employees to them? So you given one definition of authenticity and then do you have for your other for the value do you also have like practical examples of situations and and how the value would live in there we don't as much what i would prefer to say is rather than living by the definitions is that the best test is when a new employee comes into the company and i'll talk to a new employee 3 or 4 months down the road and i'll just say what has your experience been and I have heard almost every single time that they said, not you, 
the CEO, because it's easy for the CEO to say, hey, we live by our core values, but we do team interviews and things like that. And I heard other members of the team saying, we live our values. And I was skeptical when I came in here that that actually was going to be true because I've seen it happen in so many other places that they don't actually live their core values. They say, I have never felt more integrated into a team as quickly as I did at the receptionist. And then I never, I actually came to believe that this company does live by its core values. They're used in the lexicon of everyday conversation. They're part of our meetings. They're part of everything we do. We even had James Jordan, who is our design manager. He is an incredibly talented person on his own, unbeknownst to even me. He developed a video wrap of our core values where he wrapped out each one of the core values and what they mean in his own interpretation and then launched and we put it on LinkedIn and people loved it. And it was just like that where it's not where I have to say this is what the definition of it is or that the leadership has to say that's what the definition is. It's the, the team kind of owns it and knows it. And everybody in the team was just like, I can't believe you did this, James. It was just amazing how kind of all of that can come together when you're tr truly living your core values. That is fabulous. I have a question about core values. Like, you know, the places where people feel that your organization is not living up to their core values, a lot of the times are, you know, there's a situation where the rubber meets the road. There's a decision that needs to be made that may impact the company negatively in the short term. But if you take the decision to keep the company in a positive state, that the decision goes against the core values. Did you have to navigate any situation like that? We haven't. And I would say because we, uh, well, the team definitely keeps us honest, that's for sure. But if we violate that, if we violate what we have in fabric and what we've built, we can almost instantly tear down and destroy everything we've built so far. So we have, I mean, I, I really have a, a leadership team that we are all on the same page. And it's been, it's, it's something, uh, this is interesting because, uh, you know, Rand Fishkin, who obviously was on your podcast, talked about the fact that when he left, he almost said, you know, to the new CEO, you need to just like create your own core values. And the thing that struck me when he said that was, I feel as though if I was hit by the veritable bus, that these core values would continue to live on in the company and that it would be possible for that to happen just because we're all so bought into what the core values and also our why and our just cause, which I'd love to get to as well, because we're all so focused on making sure that the employees have a really great experience. Because we know if the employees feel like the company trusts them and we're building those trusting teams that Simon Sinek talks about, that they are going to then say, I'm going to operate under the core values. I'm going to do what's in the best interest of the company. I'm going to be able to carry forward everything I've heard about what we do and have been shown by example about what we do. Yeah, that, that is very true. I think like in Rent's case, I think, you know, some of his comment is the fact that he felt that the management team had veered away from his core values in, in, in the process. Yep. How large is your team right now overall? We're 17 total. So we're tiny. Yeah, we're a tiny team. 
You're tiny, right? So uh, I'm interested in, and I don't know what's your sort of growth plan or, but like, what do you think would be some of the challenges in maintaining that strength if you were like scaling at X times, not going from 16 to 20, but if you were to 160, 1600? I have been asked that question. Let me just take you through sort of a story of the experience that we've had. Because in terms of wanting, I want to get there. I want, I want to show, I want to prove to the world that what we're doing at 17 can last at 170 and can go all the way to 1700, you know, if we were, we were lucky enough to become that big. So what happened was I've had, you know, there's been a lot of times that, um, let me just put it this way. My formation of who I am as an entrepreneur comes from the fact that I have two older brothers. I'm the youngest of six. And the two older brothers are very successful. One is Joe Alsop, and he founded Progress Software and grew it to a $3 billion market cap on the NASDAQ and stuff. And then my other brother is Stuart Alsop, and he is a well-known venture capitalist, was with New Enterprise Associate, and now is uh, with Alsop Louis Partners, who's made some amazing investments. And when you have that type of entrepreneurial kind of muscle in the, in the family, you're always saying, how can I be like them? How can I be like them? Especially when they're younger, when you're the younger brother. So for a long time going through my career, I was always almost kind of living in those shadows saying, what am I going to do that's going to allow me to get there? And what ended up happening going through the whole thing, I buy the receptionist and I am meeting with both Joe and Stuart. And Stuart says to me something that I thought was sort of a seminal thing. He said, you know, Andy, I don't think you need venture capital to grow this business. This is going to throw off enough cash. And I, it was almost like a license to say, I don't have to go the VC route. So we went bootstrap. Okay, so that's an important point in our history. I, I'm, I am devoted to the idea of doing a bootstrapped company. We may need capital, but I'm, I'm honestly not interested in taking venture capital. I think there's ways and avenues that if I need capital, I can get there that don't require me to sell equity in the company. So the second thing is that we began after we finished this kind of journey through traction and we've been working along the company for a while, we've always been a little introspective about how can we make a company that is really the long game not just a short term, we're going to be growing as quite quickly as we can, but it's something that can last for the long time. And part of it was, uh, I listened to a video, and it was an interview with Inc. and Simon Sinek about the Infinite Game. And in it, he talks about, you know, you, if you know any Simon Sinek stuff, he started like with one of his early videos was the why of Apple, and that really kind of got him kind of going. And he's kind of carried that through. And it was like, what is our why? Why are we doing this? And that set us on a huge exploration. And so for me personally, I'm kind of like, why am I doing this? To do it just to get rich doesn't feel like it has anything. It, that has nothing there. It feels so empty and vacuous. And so that, that doesn't work for me. I actually have this also this one point in time. I live in Santa Fe, as I said, and we've got these dirt roads around Santa Fe, if you've ever been to Santa Fe. And they're around our house and I go on these walks sometimes. And I remember it was on this one walk that I came to the point of what my why was. And I ended up, I did a voice memo, you know, like recording on my phone. So I was like, okay, I think I got it. And I worked it down and it came down to build a financially successful company so that the company can invest in the people who make it flourish. 
that really spoke to me. I'm helping the people. So it's like, I want a profitable company that's going to help them flourish and then share my knowledge and experience so that others can be prosperous and happy. And here I am on a, a podcast talking about this. This fulfills what I, what I need to do as a person. And so now all of a sudden you take that forward and you say, okay, in the company, what is our why? And this I know has influenced a lot by me, but myself and my leadership team came up with this collectively. We all said, what are our professional whys? And it was amazing how close they were and how much they kind of came together. So our why as a company is to build a company that operates with compassion, lives with integrity, and fosters strong human connections. Man, that's really close to my why, but it was also really close to other people's whys as well. So then we had to come up. The next stage you have to come up with is, what is your just cause? What is it you are doing? And if you haven't read The Infinite Game, it's so incredible because what Simon does is he brings in these stories of just causes where they didn't even know they're just causes, but where the people in the company or the organization were feeling so strong about what they felt that they were going to put that cause in front of potentially even their own lives. And it's just a, a great story. So we have come up with a just cause that is to build a world where a company's profits fuel the mission to be in service to its employees and community. Now, part of that video that I watched on Simon Sinek, he brought up the idea of share, shareholder supremacy. And when I heard that, and it's, it, it came from Milton Friedman, and Milton Friedman, as part of his article in the New York Times in September of 1970, he wrote the social responsibility of business to increase its profits. He just now I think of that and I hear that and I go, oh. And he said, one of his quotes was, corporations have no higher purpose than maximizing profits for their shareholders. That is the whole idea behind shareholder supremacy. And I feel as though shareholder supremacy has done a lot of damage to the corporate culture because what it's caused leaders of companies to do because the almighty thing that they are going after is to maximize profits for their shareholders. The ones who suffer the most from that are employees, right? Employees become part of the balance sheet. Oh, we had a down quarter, better hack off a couple hundred employees or whatever else it is, or we need to reduce benefits or whatever else. So what I've done is I've come up with something that I've called employee supremacy. And that is where company leaders like myself and my leadership team are making decisions that benefit the employees. Because why do you want to benefit the employees? You want to make sure that the people who are sitting in front of your customers are as satisfied as they can be, that they feel like the company has their back, that they feel like the company trusts them and they trust the company because they start to do extraordinary things as a result of it. They start to take ownership for what they are going to do for the customer, but they're doing it for the benefit of the company as well, because they feel such a strong connection to the company. And so it is really this that has, and this, is, this has come from the 25, however many years it is that I've been running companies that I have, or been part of teams running companies, that I have felt this passion for what I see as the way to operate a company to be able to focus on the employees. And it's funny, you have turned me on to some great things that I've already started to, to read, you know, and to listen to. And 
you and other leaders in the, in the industry are coming to me and saying, have you read this? Have you thought about that? That is what makes me so passionate and so focused on what we're doing. Well, just as a quick aside, you're just smiling as I'm listening to you because I'm actually in the process of starting a company and working with a partner. And what's interesting to me is that we felt what was our mission. And, in, and I talk about leadership of service, like a, the leader is a service, right? And it's a servant of their employees, the families connected with the employees, the community that they're a part of, the vendors that rely on the business from the company to, to stay solvent and, and to, to benefit. And I think that the notion of employee supremacy as a optimization tool, if you will, it's something that can support all of that. And so, as I say, my partner and I, when we have this conversation right now, how do we want our company to be? They have been in this territory, but without the clarity that you just brought. And I think, and that is very refreshing. I want to go back for a second to something you said at the beginning about your two very successful brothers and sort of the idea that as the younger brother, you sort of had to match up to their success. Was there a point where you thought that maybe the way that you were defining success is different from the way that they are? And what was that experience? In the beginning, I didn't. I thought that their definition of success was, I'd heard it before, go big or go home. And honestly, I'll be totally honest with you, caused anxiety for me when I heard that term. I'm like, go big or go home. Be first to market. Market leaders win. Second, third in the market lose. I just didn't feel like that matched what I was thinking. And so with that walk down the roads of Santa Fe, when I finally came up to what I felt like what was my important thing, that allowed me to break away from it and realize that I'm doing it differently. So I've done podcasts on this topic and I've sent it to my brothers. And I had my brother Stuart send the podcast to my brother Joe and said, look at our idealistic younger brother here. And I'm like, yep, that's exactly it. I'm totally idealistic. But I also feel to like just to the core of, of my being that this is the right way to do it. And when you're running under, you know, shareholder supremacy, and you've got to make sure you're maximizing profits for the uh, shareholders, what you're doing is making icky decisions. And the shareholders generally are the ones that are at the top of the company. You know, so of course, there's other shareholders, but you know, I'm not gonna lie, I own 65% of this company. And if I did everything, I should be almost looking out for myself, right? But I'm, I might do things so that I'm maximizing my shareholder value that is not going to be something that will align with the employees. So then I have to go around kind of hiding and lying and doing all these things in the background because I don't want the employees to know that I'm maximizing shareholder value. And now I've turned it around. And because I'm not making decisions so that I can maximize the shareholder value, I want to go ahead and maximize the value that our employees feel and the underlying sort of side effect or the thing you intend to do is that the value of the company grows, in my opinion. If you do it this way and you have a company that's leading in this way, leading with the employees being first, it's not that you're saying, oh, no, I don't care about my shareholders or I don't care about the value of the company. 
I'm a capitalist in the end. I want to see our company grow. I want to see our company become more valuable. But there's not only one way to do it. There's, there are other ways to do it. And this is the way I believe I can do it that's going to raise shareholder value in the end, but not because I'm just trying to maximize shareholder value. That is a fascinating point of view. And I think there's a lot of truth to it. I'm wondering in a situation where it's a public corporation where shareholders have the option of where they put their capital, how that would play. Have you, is that something that you've asked yourself? Well, I think it was actually just uh, listening to a reference of the two things. Um, I think it's the Vanguard, very famous person from Vanguard. I can't remember his name, unfortunately. But he talked about the fact that the length of shareholder ownership at this point has gone from like six years down to a year and that people are renting stock versus actually owning stock, which I think is a terrible thing because it doesn't mean people are looking at the value of the company. It's something they're just trying to ride the coattails of. But then you look at like Warren Buffett, who takes a different philosophy as one of the richest men in the world, and he takes the long game. And so it's really about the long game and actually focusing on what you're, what you're going to do in the long game. So one of the other examples is the, the owner of Costco. And he is all about the long game. And so I think I've heard this from a few people, but have not substantiated it, that there is sort of a trend towards maybe not doing quarterly cycles in terms of doing earnings reviews, right? That that all that does is create this hamster wheel where everybody's just trying to grow shareholder value because I got to do the earnings report every quarter. So I think the way I would look at it is if you're the, you know, rent a stock style, no probably this isn't going to be the type of investment you want. But if you're looking at like a Warren Buffett, where you're saying, I'm actually going to buy a whole company like Geico or whatever else, and I'm going to own it for 20 years and see the substantial growth and value, and you're using employee shareholder as the way to do it, I think that is what, the way you grow a company. Because if you also think about it, if you are focused on and you say, look, as an employee, we focus on you. We're not focused on the shareholders. What do you get? You get better employees. You get the best employees because where do employees want to go? They want to go to a company where they feel value. They want to feel trusted. They want to feel that they can have their own voice. So all of those things collectively, I think investors... And one other thing about this, I'll just say is that there are investment VC firms that will only invest in traction-based companies, companies running under the entrepreneurial operating system. I could see this being where there are investment firms that say, we actually recognize this is a better way to do things, and we are going to invest only in companies that run under employee supremacy and no longer about shareholder supremacy. I'm an idealist, I know, but I really believe it. No, I, I think where your point of view to me really has a lot of economic value is this at the end of the day and especially you know in the u.s we are in an economy where the difference between creating value and not creating value is talent and if you are truly running on employee supremacy you're going to attract the best talent exactly so Assuming that hopefully somebody has been listening long enough to this and to say, that's what I want to do. I want to start thinking about running my company using employee supremacy as a criteria. What are the two or three things that you would recommend they do? 
Well, one thing, I mean, just to proceed that just real quickly is that we talked about an our just cause. We said to build a world and we didn't say to build the receptionist or to build Denver or to build Colorado. We said to build a world. So what I want to see is a sea change in how leaders are thinking about this. But we're also this peon of a company in Denver sitting here spouting out about how you should run your company. So something I tell my leadership team and I tell everybody in the company and we're all bought into this, we have to grow. Because if we don't grow, people are going to like that. That was a really fun idea, Andy, but it didn't really mean anything. And so that's a really key point of this. So watch our journey. I always keep telling everybody, just watch our journey, see if we, if we can actually make this work. And if you want to be part of a journey, come, come look at our careers page as well. But in terms of the things, I have to believe that there are stepping stones or building blocks that you need to be able to run a company under employee supremacy. And I think traction, because it is so focused and connected to why you have to have core values and why you have to adhere to your core values. And you have this organizational approach to your company. That was really important to us. And the important part is that you're, you're living the infinite game. You know, there's this finite game versus the infinite game. And that's what Simon Sinek talks about. And the infinite game is really looking at the long term. It's not this finite game. You know, a finite game is like a game like football or baseball. There are set rules. Everybody agrees to the rules. They, you know when there's a winner. Well, business isn't like that. You can't say that anybody wins the game of business. So you really can't play a finite game like a game like baseball in the game of business. You have to play the infinite game, meaning that all you're trying to do is keep the game going, perpetuating the game. That's what you're trying to do with your business. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to gain more customers and we're trying to gain more cash. We're trying to bring on better people because we're in the infinite game. So you need to have that infinite game kind of mindset to be able to get to the point of saying, now I want to run under employee supremacy. Because you've got to get out of your head this idea that we are going to go and beat the competitors. Actually, consider them rivals. Consider them the actual people that are making you better. They're reflecting back to you how you can do better, but you don't have to kill the, the rivals or the, the, the competitors. So I would say that the first half is EOS and traction. Second half is, is the infinite game. And then I think you can get to employee supremacy. All right. That is fabulous. So let's shift to the sort of more personal part of the conversation. Do you have any interest or hobby outside of work that is important to you? And how has that potentially impacted your work? Yeah. Well, let's see. So I have three kids, but they're now 22, 19, and 18. And so up until, so for the last 20 years, I've been raising kids. So between running companies and raising kids, that was pretty much what I did. But it's kind of funny because now I'm in the point of being sort of an empty nester, which my wife and I are finding is sort of an odd place. I love to play golf. I think golf is very much like business and that it's a challenge. You're constantly trying to get better. You're trying to just make it work. And so I, I love, I, I always say that I've been playing since I was 18 years old. I haven't improved much, so I got to keep working on that. But I've also, I don't know if these are hobbies, but it's something we've been doing a lot. Is we, we bought a house in Denver. We bought a house that was built in 1890 and it was a wreck. And so we had to completely renovate it. It was basically about four walls and a roof and had to redo the whole thing. Um, and then we started doing some renovations in our house in Santa Fe as well. So 
I'd say that's what keeps me busy. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. My favorite question of every interview is like every era has business jargons and cliche, which is the one that drive you crazy? You know, I thought about this one, you know, and I, I don't know. This is a really tough one for me. For whatever reason, I don't really get bothered by cliches or jargon. I guess I must just tune it out or whatever. So I, I, I couldn't really come up with anything that really bugged me too much. All right. Fabulous. And then final question. Uh, it's what I call food for the body or food for the soul. Is there a recipe or a drink or is there a you know, piece of art, song, movie, book that has really inspired you? So, of course, I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it is uh, for anybody who hasn't been here, come here. It's a beautiful place. Gorgeous blue skies. And I have the benefit of driving back and forth between Denver and Santa Fe, which are almost two different climates as well. And so what I love and my passion actually is I listen to a lot of books, audiobooks, and getting in my car and driving on a beautiful fall day and driving up the back way, which takes you through like Taos, New Mexico and Cuesta, New Mexico and San Luis Valley and into Fort Garland and then Walsenburg and all of these places. I've had some of the most magical experiences doing that. And I take pictures and I listen to audiobooks. And I have to say, it's some of the things that it's like the food for my soul. I just sit there and, and marvel at how amazing this planet is that we live in with these gorgeous clouds that are dramatic behind these mountains and everything. So that's, that's my food for my soul. That's great. Andy, thank you so much. It's funny, like I hear you talking, I'm like, when I came up with the idea of this podcast, it was like an ideal guest that I had in mind. And at the end of this conversation, this is as close as I've got. Wow. So you're inspiring. And thank you so much. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. That was incredibly nice of you. And I've really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, tell a friend who may enjoy it too and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the podcast, please tell all your friends and post about it in social media. Also, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast in your favorite listening platform so that you don't miss any of the new episodes. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or any platform that allows you to leave reviews, please leave us a good review. Don't forget that I will pick my two favorite reviews from the month of November and send out to one a copy of Dory Clark's book and to the other one a copy of Aliza Kohn's book. If you like music, stick around because at the end of the episode, I will play yet one more song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best singer-songwriters in the Americana genre. Now, if you want to learn more about Andy, you can go to the website thereceptionist.com and then go to the blog section where you will find a lot of really good posts and you will also find episodes from the corporate podcast, which is called The Fabric Podcast. And you will also find, I believe it was posted in early October, an episode where Andy talks in depth about employee supremacy. And if you want to connect with Andy, he is on LinkedIn. His name is Andy and then last name also spelled A-L-S-O-P. You can find me online at al4ep.com or authenticleadershipforeverydaypeople.com. And then you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. I am on Twitter, Instagram with the handle at 
AL4EDP and on Facebook, AuthenticLeadershipForEverydayPeople.com. And now we're actually also part of Facebook podcast. So you can listen to the show directly from Facebook in your podcast. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits from Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums on it. And guitar was played by Tony Savarino, and the bass is by Jesse Williams. Now, as promised, here is a song by Susan Cattaneo. And the song, I know I played it before, but I think it particularly fit the theme of this episode. The song is Work Hard, Love Harder, here in the rocking version with the Bottle Rockets. Enjoy. Take your life and turn it up loud